as we get back into our soap opera, the days of our lives with our protagonist, Jacob. And as our scene opens up this week and the piano music fades into the distance, our protagonist, Jacob, is in his 80s and is living in a place known as Haran along with his uncle Laban's family. Jacob has worked for seven years to earn the right to marry Rachel, Laban's beautiful daughter, but in a shocking plot twist. Jacob, the master trickster, was himself deceived by Uncle Laban into marrying Leah, Rachel's far less attractive older sister, and was then told that he could marry Rachel as well as long as he worked another seven years to pay her off. As you could imagine, this would have made for some pretty awkward family dynamics at get-togethers and dinners, including Jacob hating Leah, his one wife, for robbing him of seven years of his life and deceiving him into marrying her. As I said last week, ladies, just a word of advice, it's never good if you have to pretend to be someone else, literally, in order to get someone to marry you. Like if you have to fake your ID to do it, it's just not a good thing, don't do that. But in yet another plot twist, Rachel, the beautiful one loved by Jacob, found herself unable to have children. While the Lord sympathized with Leah's position as the unloved wife and blessed her with four sons, including those who would go on to be the father of the priestly tribe of Levi and the father of the kingly tribe of Judah. So let's jump in. In chapter 30, we'll start in verse 1, and it says, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, obviously, this has nothing to do with Jacob because he's already had four sons with Leah, right? And so while Rachel might have been real nice to look at, she was grumpy. She was grumpy. Single men, listen to me. The wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus Christ, King Solomon, recorded Proverbs that he felt the world needed to know in order to live in a more enlightened manner. And one of those important truths that he recorded is noted in Proverbs 21 verse 9. It's on your outline and it says this, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Translated into modern language, it's better to live outside, in Vancouver, in the winter, on one of the corners of your home's roof than to live inside that home with a nagging wife. That's what King Solomon said. And I applaud you men for having the discernment to not say amen out loud to that. I take that as an encouragement. I'm seeing some real growth among us. Praise God for that. That's good. So Rachel, Rachel was a hottie with a body, but she drove Jacob crazy, crazy, and not in the good kind of way. Everything was his fault. Now on a spiritual level, we're not gonna see Rachel seek the Lord at all, at all. We're not gonna see her seek the Lord at all. You know, everybody worships something. Everybody has something in their life that they look to to get hope and meaning and purpose. And when that something in your life is not God, the Bible calls it an idol, a false God. And we're gonna find that Rachel is so miserable because she's worshiping an idol instead of worshiping the Lord. 
And what happens when we worship an idol instead of the Lord? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, it's also on your outlines. He says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, that's what's happening to Rachel. Her, her mind is becoming full of foolish and confused and illogical and futile thoughts because she's got her hope and purpose tied up in an idol instead of the real God. So make a note of this. For Rachel, having children was the idol she worshipped. For Rachel, having children was the idol she worshipped. Let me also say this. At the end of his life, Jacob's request is going to be that he be buried where Leah is, not where Rachel is. It's literally an indication that even though he knew there was an afterlife, he knew there was a God, he wasn't exactly sure how it worked. And he was like, I, I don't know if the person I'm buried with is who I'm going to be stuck with for all eternity. So just in case, bury me with Leah, not Rachel, even though Rachel's the hot one. And so the point is this. I wouldn't say to anybody, don't marry for looks, because we all married for looks to some degree. Let's just be honest about that. I would say don't marry for only looks, because one day, one day, neither of you is going to look that good. That's just the truth. And it's going to come down to whether or not you actually like being with the person. And it's going to come down to that probably sooner than anybody thinks. Do you actually like being in a room with them, conversing with them? So if you're single, make sure that the person you marry is someone you genuinely enjoy being with and talking with and you enjoy their company. Jacob found out that that was not the case with Rachel. But over time, Leah, the one that he hated, he actually came to say, you know what? You're not actually that bad to hang out with. I kind of like hanging out with you. Definitely more than Rachel. So keep that in mind if you're single. Verse 2, and Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Rachel refuses to ask the question, is there anything in my life that might be causing God's blessing to be withheld from me? She refuses to look at herself and instead immediately blames someone else for her problems, even though it's obviously not Jacob's fault. And in this instance, and, and, and many others, her husband is her target, which is why he snaps at her and says, it's not my fault. I've had four sons with your ugly older sister. I'm not God. I can't solve this kind of problem. Why don't you ask him why you can't have children? Spoiler alert, she's not going to take his advice. So make a note of this. Rachel made the mistake of blaming others. Rachel blamed others rather than examining herself and seeking the Lord. She blamed others. It's always easier to blame someone else than to take a look in the mirror. And let me say this to the woman in the room who are listening or watching this message online. If, if you look to your husband for what only the Lord can give you, you will not be a blessing to your husband. You'll be a burden. And you'll be miserable too. Because he cannot meet those needs that only the Lord can. And I've seen it too many times in, in the church of Jesus, a, a downcast wife whose husband is never around enough. He's not enough of a companion. He never gives her enough affirmation, so she feels worthless. He doesn't have enough deep, heartfelt, emotional conversations. And, and while every husband should strive to, to bless his wife, he cannot offer the companionship, the presence, the peace, the affirmation, and the purpose that the Lord can. 
He can't do it. He can't do it. He'll crumble under the weight of it. He'll become that husband who drives home and sits in the driveway for 30 minutes trying to get up the energy to step inside the door because he knows that as soon as he does, his wife is going to one way or another be complaining about something that's lacking. Marriage works best when our needs are met in our relationship with the Lord and so we're free to enjoy each other rather than expecting each other to be the Lord, which neither of us can be. Neither of us can be. The best thing that you can do for your spouse is have your needs met in your relationship with the Lord. They'll enjoy you and you will enjoy them so much more. That's how marriage is designed to work. But no spouse can take the place of the Lord. It will destroy them and it'll wreck your marriage as well. You'll both be miserable. Verse three, so she said, here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. So he says, here's my mate. Go sleep with my mate and we'll have a kid and that kid will be our kid. It'll count as our kid. And if you've been with us through our journey in Genesis, then your mind will immediately go back to the time when Sarah employed this same strategy with her husband, Abraham. Had him sleep with her maid, Hagar, to produce a son that would turn out to be Ishmael. And there's two schools of thoughts here. You know, some pastors will read it and go off and say, well, clearly this is a learned behavior, the sins of the father being passed down by poor example from one generation to another, and the same mistakes are repeating in each generation. But, but I think the reality is that that's not what's going on. The reality is that historically, this was a very, very common practice in the world at that time, that if a woman was unable to have children and she had a maid, she could use her maid as a surrogate, essentially, and claim the children as her own. It's not God's design or plan. As we've talked about before, the Bible is just being honest in recording the fact that it happened. And so, because Rachel's thinking is confused, because she's worshiping an idol instead of worshiping the Lord, she doesn't seek the Lord for guidance. Really get this, she doesn't seek the Lord for guidance. She looks to the cultural practices of the day. She looks around her in the culture and says, how do we solve this sort of problem? What does the culture say I should do to solve this problem? And that's where she gets her answers from the culture. Now don't blow past this because we do the exact same thing all the time. Let me slow down and say it again another way and you can write this down. Instead of seeking the Lord's wisdom, Rachel turned to the wisdom of the world. And the problem with the wisdom of the world is it's just so accessible. It's so easy to find the wisdom of the world. Just turn on the TV. It's being spewed all the time. Pick up a magazine, hop on social media. It's everywhere. And, and side note, I have to say I'm alarmed with the amount of worldly wisdom that I see creeping into Christianity, especially the philosophy of you having to love yourself. This whole idea of love yourself, live your best life, it's all about you, and, and, and the highest value is you being happy because God loves you, he wants you to be happy, so do what makes you happy, rather than saying, yes, God loves you, he wants you to be happy, but you will never be more satisfied than you will be in Jesus. And that's what the Lord wants for you, is more of Jesus. The second we start deciding what makes us happy, we get into real, real trouble, and that philosophy is no different to what the world is doing which is just saying, just do whatever your flesh wants to do. If it makes you happy, it's enough justification. That's a philosophy of the world, it's worldly wisdom, it's not the wisdom of the Bible, and it's empty. 
But Rachel looks around at the culture and she says, okay, culture says I should give my maid to my husband, so, so let's do that. Let's just roll with that. You see, seeking the Lord takes effort and patience. I don't know if you've noticed this, but these are qualities that are in short supply in our culture of instant gratification. And if we're not connected to the Lord, our thinking becomes clouded and confused and futile and, and ridiculous ideas start seeming like good ideas. They start making sense and that's what Rachel does. She says, well, why don't I just have my husband get my maid pregnant, right? That makes sense, which is why it's so important to be rooted in the word of God and have the scriptures built up in your heart so that when you hear ideas that are not God's ideas, you recognize them as being not God's ideas. Verse four, then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her. The name Bilhah means troubled, and indeed that's what this whole situation was. Verse five, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan, which means judge. So Rachel felt that God had vindicated her by giving her this son, through Bilhah, his maid. Is that what the Lord had done? Of course not. That's not at all how the Lord works. But again, Rachel's thinking is confused because she's not worshiping the Lord. Verse seven, and Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means my wrestling. And this gives us some insight into, are you picking up on this, just how toxic this family is and, and, and the rivalry between Rachel and her sister Leah is? They viewed themselves as being at war with each other for children, for Jacob, for influence in the family. Whatever it was, they were at war. And as always, we see that while polygamy did occur in the Bible, it was never God's design. And if you pay attention to what the Bible says, it always leads to awful family dynamics. None of you should be reading this and be going like, oh dude, that's hot man, two wives, that's awesome. This is a train wreck of a mess. There's no way that Jacob looked forward to coming home every day into this home with this sort of toxic environment. Well, Leah realizes that her time of bearing children seems to be over, but she wants to keep the, the lead that she has over Rachel. So she gets her maid into the game, you know, like a tag team thing. Verse nine, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad, which means troop. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. Now Reuben, which is the oldest son, the firstborn son from Leah, went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, well, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So apparently there's, there's some sort of rotation, some sort of nightly schedule they had with Jacob and Rachel was going to trade her slot that evening for these mandrakes. Now why does she want these mandrakes so badly? Is she just really passionate about cooking ingredients? Well, history tells us 
that mandrakes were considered an ancient aphrodisiac and fertility booster. They're also known as love apples and they, they grow on the ground like strawberries and they weren't common. So when you found one, it was considered a real find. And just in case you, you're not grasping the significance of this, let me put it into modern day terms. So, so imagine if Viagra pills only occurred in the wild, okay? And they weren't very common. And you stumbled upon a plant with 20 Viagra pills on it. Can you imagine what you could sell them for on Craigslist? What the demand would be like? That's kind of what's going on right here. So they're a big deal. Did these mandrakes work? Well, as they say, 60% of the time, it works every time. I'm kidding, we have no idea if it worked. But again, we're gonna find that when Rachel does get pregnant, it's gonna be because of God's providence, not because of these mandrakes. So we can look at this whole picture though and conclude that Rachel really wanted these mandrakes because she must have felt that they would boost her chances of getting pregnant and having her first own biological child. That's why she wanted them so badly. Verse 16, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. Good to see you too, sweetie. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So unexpectedly now, Leah starts giving birth to kids again, and she has another son, a fifth son. Can you imagine Rachel's reaction when that happens? She tries to scheme and plot her way and manipulate her way into getting pregnant, and Leah gets pregnant again seemingly on the very night that she traded to Leah for the mandrakes. She must have been out of her mind, frustrated. But that's what happens when we try to plot and scheme instead of seeking the Lord. It just, it never really works out. Verse 18, Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means wages. So Leah also has a misperception of the situation. She, she feels that God owes her favor and blessing and that this son is God settling a debt with her. It's a very messed up perspective. Verse 19, then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun, which means dwelling. So Leah now goes back to thinking, this is gonna win my husband over. And this toxic competition with her sister just keeps going on year after year after year. Verse 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah, Dinah, which means judgment. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. So Rachel's now gonna give birth to her first biological child. Won't be because of mandrakes, but because God blesses her. Verse 23, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph, which means he will add and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. So just notice this, in Rachel there's no, there's no praise, there's no thankfulness. All she says is, God has stopped wronging me. Not God has done good for me, God's finally stopped mistreating me. And she names her son, God will give me even more. 
So she's unable to appreciate the fact that she's just had the son she's wanted for years and years and years. She's never satisfied because the idol in her life at this point is children. It's children and the love of her husband, Jacob. And so she says, when I get kids, then my life will be complete. But she gets one. And all she can do is not enjoy it, not appreciate it, not be blessed by it, but just say, I need another one. God's going to give me even another one. There's no rest or peace for her soul. And that's the way it is for anyone who doesn't get their peace and purpose from the Lord. Nothing's ever enough to satisfy. There's always another goal. There's always another target. Something else that if you have it, you're sure that we'll have peace, we'll have purpose once we get this thing. For how many people in Vancouver right now is it owning a home? They're spending years of their life working, putting everything else on hold, family, time with their spouse. If we can just get a home, buy a house, then we'll have everything we need and everything will come together. For how many couples is it a kid? For how many single people is it a marriage? For how many students is it a college degree or a certain job? When I have that, then I'll be satisfied. But when it's not the Lord, you get there and you find that the goalposts have just moved further down the road. And now there's another target to chase and you're never able to be satisfied and really enjoy it because only the Lord can satisfy. Write this down. If you can't be satisfied where you are in life in the Lord, if you can't be satisfied where you are, you're not going to be satisfied somewhere else. Man, that is the truth. When it comes to being satisfied in life, if you can't find satisfaction in the Lord as a single person, you won't be satisfied when you're married. If you can't be satisfied in the Lord living in an apartment, you're not gonna be satisfied when you can buy a house. If you can't be satisfied in the Lord driving a Chevy Cavalier, an outstanding automobile, by the way, you won't be satisfied driving a Porsche. You won't. If you can't be satisfied where you are, you're not gonna be satisfied somewhere else. Rachel said, I just want a kid or I will die. God gave her one. I just want another kid. And in a tragic irony, do you know what happens to Rachel when she gets that other kid? She dies in childbirth. She dies in childbirth. Learn to be thankful and satisfied in the Lord where you are. Learn to trust him to decide how much is enough for you because what you think you need just might be the death of you. Let your heavenly Father who loves you and knows all things decide what is good for you. He knows, he knows better than you do. A good chunk of the book of Genesis will be devoted to the life of Joseph and, and all you need to understand at this point as you think about the son Joseph that Rachel has had is you just need to recognize that he's the first biological son that Rachel has had. It's the first biological son born to the wife that Jacob loved and he had been a long time coming. So you can imagine how spoiled 
and babied this son is going to be, which is going to be important when we get to the life of Joseph in a few chapters. Well, between Rachel, Leah, and their maids, they've produced 11 sons thus far, and these 11 sons will all be part of the group of fathers of the famous 12 tribes of Israel. The 12th will be Benjamin, who will be born to Rachel in a few chapters' time. And in this, we can see the hand of God beginning to make Jacob's family into the great nation of Israel. And in the years to come, these 12 tribes would be able to look back and read about their fathers and where they came from, but they would also be able to read about the rivalry and conflict between their mothers, and that would serve as a reminder to make sure that they never fell into the same kind of rivalry and jealousy that their mothers had. Well, now we shift scenes in our story, change camera angle in this soap opera. And it came to pass, verse 25, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Uncle Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me go. For you know my service which I've done for you. In other words, it's time for me to go, Uncle Laban. You know that I've worked hard for you. I've worked faithfully for you. I fulfilled the time commitment I made to you. Verse 27, and Laban said to him, please stay if I found favor in your eyes. Jacob's thinking you haven't. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. Laban says, Jacob, I recognize that I'm being blessed because of my proximity to you, because you're hanging out close to me and God likes you. So, so just let me know what it's gonna take to keep you here. Laban doesn't say, don't go, Jacob, because I love you. I love my daughters. I love my grandkids and, and I wanna learn more about this God of yours. He just says, Jacob, listen, bottom line is you're too good for business for me to just let you go. Verse 29, so Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide for my own house? Hey, you've been blessed, Uncle Laban, but now it's time for me to start taking care of my own family, including your grandkids, and start building up my own family business. Verse 31, so he, Laban, said, well, what shall I give you? You're a tough negotiator, Jacob. What's your number? What's it going to take? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. But if you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Jacob says, okay, I'll, I'll stay a while longer if you'll let me do this one little thing. Now we have the showdown. We have two tricksters, two connivers going head to head here in a battle of wits to try and outdo each other. Jacob is gonna present an offer to Laban that is gonna sound like it'll cost Laban next to nothing. And so Laban's gonna jump all over this deal. But as we shall see, our boy Jacob, he's working an angle. Verse 32, Jacob says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. All you need to give me is payment for this next season of working for you is all the sheep, lambs, and goats that are, that are rare, the ones that are born off color, the few speckled and spotted and brown ones, and 
This will make things really simple because we'll know whose animals are who. And if you find any animals among my flocks and herds that are not speckled or spotted or brown, then we'll know that they're yours. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, deal, says Uncle Laban. Verse 35, so he, now notice what he does here. This is Laban, removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So what does Laban do? He makes this deal and immediately goes to work, removing all the animals from his flocks and herds that would have gone to Jacob, and he sends them three days' journey away from the rest of his flocks and herds and from Jacob. So he's doing everything he can to make this deal as bad for Jacob as possible. He doesn't even care that Jacob's goal in this deal is to take care of his family and and Laban's grandkids. Laban takes out all the animals that would have gone to Jacob, and therefore all the animals that would have been likely to produce offspring that would have gone to Jacob. And Jacob obviously would have realized something is going on when he showed up later that day and all the spotted and speckled and brown animals are are just gone. They were there yesterday and now they're all gone. But, But he doesn't lash out. He doesn't lash out. He trusts God to take care of him. Now really hear me on this. Because when you've got a promise or a word from the Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody else does to try and stop it. It does not matter, write this down. God's promises for our lives are not dependent upon the cooperation of others. They're not dependent upon the cooperation of others. That is a huge, huge principle. Sometimes those others even include us. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the God who saved us is going to complete his work in us one way or another. Whether we cooperate or put up a fight, he's going to do it. Why? Because God's promises for your life and mine are not dependent upon the cooperation of others. Some of them are not even dependent upon our cooperation. God's going to do what God is going to do. And I can never turn down the chance to share one of my favorite verses on this subject. Proverbs 19.21, and Solomon again says, there are many plans in a man's heart. In other words, people make a lot of plans. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Another translation says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the will of the Lord prevails. In other words, God gives you a word, God gives you a promise, and it's from the Lord. People can make all the plans they want. They can do everything they can to try and derail it, but the will of God is gonna be done. The will of God is gonna be done. So don't ever freak out. Don't ever get full of fear. Don't ever get anxious thinking that somebody else has the power to derail a promise that God has given you for your life. Nobody has that power, not even Satan. Verse 37, now Jacob took for himself 
rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them and exposed the white which was in the rods. So Jacob takes branches from these trees that had dark bark and he he peels them back with a knife revealing a a light whitish wood underneath, making these streaks and spots on these branches. So in Hebrew, the word for the white which was exposed in these branches is incredibly the word Laban. It's the word Laban, which is going to be very interesting as we go on. Verse 38, uh, we'll read about something here that I'm sure most of us have done at one time or another. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We'll just keep moving on right here. Now I'll explain this to you what's going on here. Sheep tend to mate near the place where they drink. And so Jacob takes these striped, streaked, and and spotted branches he's made, and he puts them in the watering troughs. And the result is that the offspring comes out streaked, speckled, and spotted, like the branches. This is bizarre. Now, unbelievably, there's actually some significant scientific data that shows that the coloring of sheep is affected by what the male and female were thinking about or looking at when they were mating. This is like a real thing. But there's also a theory that there was something in these branches that may have somehow affected the water in a way that affected the coloring of the sheep's offspring. Am I saying that that's what happened here? I have no idea. It could be. But whether this worked as a result of natural processes or not is really irrelevant. Because why did it really happen? It happened because the Lord made it happen. Just as there's nothing magical about wooden staffs that can part water. You know, if you get a wooden staff and go to the ocean, it will not part in two. There was nothing magical going on with the staff or natural processes when the Israelites went across the Red Sea. God made it happen. If you made a rock slide happen somewhere, that's cool, but God made it happen. When David defeated Goliath, God made it happen. All these miracles in the Bible, God made it happen. And so if this is a natural process he's using to do that, that's great, but God is the one who made it happen and God gets all the credit. And when we get to the next chapter, Jacob is going to explicitly tell us that the Lord had told him this would happen and the Lord was the one who made it happen. So Jacob's got this new system though, making these streaks and spotted and branch things and throwing them in the watering trough and this makes the sheep produce offspring that are basically gonna meet the requirements for making them Jacob's under his deal with Uncle Laban. Verse 40, then Jacob separated the lambs. So whenever they produce offspring that are streaked, speckled, or spotted, or brown, Jacob takes the lambs and separates them and puts them in his own flock. And he starts building his own flock. And made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. So apparently, Jacob finds out that on the day that they struck their deal, he figured it out, Laban went behind his back and removed all the sheep and goats that would have been Jacob's and moved them three days journey away. Because whether they're still that far away or whether they're now closer, Jacob knows where Laban has taken all these animals that should be his. And he sort of passively aggressively shows this by aiming Laban's flocks that he's caring for right at the position where Laban is trying to hide all these animals that should have belonged to Jacob. And 
Other translations make this a little bit clearer though. Jacob does this during mating season, which means that they were probably within view of Jacob. And so what Jacob seems to be doing is having all of Laban's flocks visually look at speaked, streaked, speckled, and spotted sheep. He has them staring at them during mating season, okay? Now again, does that make the difference? I don't know. God is the one who made the difference. Verse 41, and it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So additionally, during this mating season, Jacob begins working a selective breeding program. So he has all of Laban's sheep and goats staring visually at speckled, spotted, and streaked brethren, basically. And then during mating season, he takes all the strong animals from Laban's flocks and he puts these branches in the watering trough. Then they mate and their offspring is meeting the requirements that would make them Jacob's. They're speckled, spotted, or streaked. And they're also strong because they come from two strong parents. Then he takes all the weak and feeble animals and doesn't put the branches in. So they produce offspring that are white or black, the normal colors for sheep and goats. And they end up belonging to Laban. So all the strong animals that are being produced are Jacob's. All the weak animals that are being produced are Laban's. And this goes on and on and on over several mating seasons and the result is that Jacob's flocks just get bigger and stronger in number and in quality while Laban's get weaker and weaker and weaker. Verse 43, thus the man, that's Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So Jacob's slick trick here works like a charm, but in the next chapter we're gonna find out there's gonna be a real price to pay for all this. There's gonna be some consequences. And we'll read about those next week in our study. Let me say this as I wrap up here. Rachel didn't look to God for meaning in her life. She looked to her husband and she looked to children. And the result is that she didn't end up with a good marriage or with a happy family. Because when you look to anything other than God, to fill the hole in your life that only God can fill, it'll never satisfy. It will never satisfy. In Romans 8.20, the Apostle Paul wrote about this. He said this about you and I. He said, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, you and I have been made subject to emptiness. We don't want to feel empty, but God uses this emptiness to cause us to look to him. What did C.S. Lewis say? He said, if I find within myself a desire that nothing in this world can meet, I can only conclude that I was not made for anything in this world. That's the idea of this emptiness that God has allowed to be in the heart of every person. It's supposed to make us look upward toward God to seek the Lord. And it's such a tragedy when we experience that emptiness and that depression and yet continue to keep going to the same empty things in an attempt to get rid of it. That's tragic. 
I know so many people who don't know the Lord and every weekend it's the same thing, same thing to try and get rid of that emptiness. They know it doesn't work, but they just refuse to try the Lord, the Lord. And so they try their best guess at what's gonna make them happy. Whether it's friends or fame or money or a certain lifestyle or a certain reputation or sex, whatever it might be, it's a tragedy when we keep going back to those same empty things even though we know they don't work. And you probably know this, but the Western world is in a mental health crisis. I was just talking with someone about this this week. If you go on social media, I'm not exaggerating here, you go on social media, it seems as though everybody identifies as being depressed and having anxiety, like everybody. Starting with middle schoolers, the percentage of the adult population that's on some type of mood-altering medication is, is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's well over a third of all adults. And I'm not saying that there's not a real need for medication in certain cases. I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's a tragedy when a person suffers from emptiness and fear and instead of seeking the Lord, says let me get some medication that can turn off the part of me that is saying this isn't working. That's a tragedy. When the emptiness that God allows us to feel because we don't have a relationship with him should be pointing us to him and we instead say, now let me just get something that'll turn that off. Let me not actually fill the emptiness, but let me get something that will trick my mind into not recognizing the emptiness anymore. That's tragic. It's as tragic as Rachel failing to realize that her husband and children will never fill the hole in her life. It's as tragic as her getting her first child. And instead of saying, wait a minute, I've got my first child, why do I still feel empty? Instead of asking that question, she just says, well, I must need to have more children. Then the emptiness will go away. It's never enough for her because without the Lord, nothing's ever enough. There's always one more missing piece. There's always one more thing that's needed. One more goal to reach, then I'll be happy. What's the way that leads to peace and fulfillment? We'll let our friend King Solomon help us out again in Proverbs 3 where he says, this is the way to peace and fulfillment. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. In other words, don't look to anyone else to fill the hole in your soul. Don't demand that God do things your way. Realize that God alone can bring you peace. God alone can bring you purpose. And if you'll do that, if you'll recognize that he's the only thing that can fill that emptiness, he will meet every need that you have. He will do it. And so let me just ask honestly, where's your hope right now, church? Where's your hope? Where's your peace right now? Is it in hoping that a situation in your life changes? Is that where your hope and peace is? In hoping that something changes? Hoping that a person changes? Hoping for a job change? Where, where is it? Where's your hope and your peace? Here's how you can know. If your hope and peace are in the Lord, you'll have them right now. You'll have them. 
If they're in something else, then you don't have them. Remember, if you can't be satisfied where you are right now in the Lord, you're never gonna be satisfied somewhere else. You're never gonna be satisfied somewhere else. Trust in the Lord, look to the Lord, hope in the Lord. You will not be disappointed, I promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. And, and I just thank you, Lord, that the second we begin to open your word, you reveal to us the truth that hope and meaning and purpose and joy and, and everything we're looking for cannot be found anywhere other than in you. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace in revealing that to us because that is you inviting us to not waste our life chasing after things that aren't gonna satisfy. You've told us right up front where to go for joy, for peace, for meaning. You've told us that it's in you. It's in knowing your son, Jesus. And so Lord, we just right now repent for any way that we might have drifted back to chasing after something else or putting our hope in something else. Lord, we recognize that yours is the peace that passes understanding. Yours is the peace that comes upon the one in prison chains like a blanket. Lord, yours is the peace that is the hand on the shoulder of the person dying in hospital. Lord, yours is the peace that stills all the noise for the Christian in the war zone right now. Yours is the peace that transcends any circumstance. And so Lord, I pray for every single one of us, everyone listening, everyone watching. Lord, would you fill us with your peace again? Would you remind us what it feels like to have your peace come upon us? the peace of your presence, God. Lord, if there's any idols in our life, would you just illuminate them? Show us what they are so that we can tear them down and instead turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.com 
www.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.